Good evening. Uh, my name is Jason. I, uh, man, I had such a good joke. I left my red Starbucks cup back there. Oh, no. Um, it would have been kind of funny. Uh, it's a beautiful red Starbucks cup. It's very festive. I'm sure they did it because uh, it looks like the blood of Jesus. Oh, hey, check it out, you guys. Starbucks is getting into the season. Uh, this is red because Starbucks wants us all to know that Jesus shed his blood for us. Um, and that's what it means. So it's pretty fantastic. Praise God for Starbucks. Um, corporate America, go nuts. Uh, <laughs> oh, goodness. Hey, uh, I'm glad you're here uh, tonight. Um, really, I'm excited you're here. Um, if you know what tonight's sermon is about, uh, I'm shocked you're here. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, it's about suffering. I don't think anybody likes talking about that. Uh, I don't like talking about that, but we're going to do that tonight. Um, uh, my name's Jason. Like I said, I'm the director of the house. If this is your first time here, uh, we're going to get kind of deep tonight. Thanks. Um, hope to know you at some point. Um, our sermon series right now is called Something More, and uh, it's a four-week series. And um, the gist of it is, uh, is we want to explore what it looks like to endure in our faith through some really, really hard seasons. And so the four weeks are um, our doubt, apathy, suffering, and disappointment. And those are four seasons, I think, that are particularly trying for our faith. And so when we talked about doubt, um, some of the suggestion um, that I think we find in the scriptures is that when we have questions, we need to be honest about them and pursue those questions, recognizing that God isn't scared of those things. And maybe we could be a community of people who allow each other the space to ask questions together. And last week on apathy, um, I think looking at some texts in scripture, one of the encouragements I find is that we are more than our feelings. We're commanded by God to bring ourselves before his throne. We are commanded to follow him with all that we have. But, but if I don't have certain feelings, I don't have to follow him with what I don't have. And so I may not feel a certain way some days. Um, I may not have uh, the particular joy or enthusiasm or something like this. Um, but I have my hands. I have my body. I have my circumstances and my time and my resources. And I can offer all these things to God. And essentially, you are more than your feelings. That's a weird lie that some of us believe. And today we're talking about suffering, um, and, uh, and this is going to be tough. Um, every single thing um, that I try to land on falls short. And I probably need to come back to that because I think that's kind of the point maybe of tonight's sermon. But um, I, I know as I talk about suffering tonight, I know um, that, that some of you in this room um, have suffered more than I can imagine. I know that in your past, um, you've suffered um, so much that I, I couldn't bear um, probably the weight of even knowing some of the details of your story. It would crush me. And I know some of you in this room uh, haven't suffered much, or, or at least you don't recognize it. You look back at your life and you're like, whew, <laughs> got out of it. Uh, or, or maybe you look forward and, and just with um, some kind of um, curiosity, wondering what that might be like and if you're going to be able to withstand it or something. Maybe you just look back and you um, haven't experienced much deep suffering in your life. Um, and, and this, quite frankly, is probably a bit of the dynamic each week for us. There are some of us in this room that struggle a lot with doubt and some that don't during this season of life. There are some of us who the apathy hasn't set in in particular places, and for some of us it really has, and suffering tonight is going to be the same dynamic. And next week with disappointment, um, some of you might not be really disappointed right now. 
You might feel really satisfied and whatever. And with all of these weeks, that's kind of been on my mind and on our, as our staff, when we talk together, one of the dynamics that's tricky for us, I think, is knowing that you're not all experiencing all of this in the exact same moment. I do know, however, two things. I know that we all are close with people that are experiencing all these things. And I also know that all of you will experience all of this throughout your life somewhere. And so the task for me, the task that I really want to try to take up is how do I prepare you using the scriptures and understanding what God has given us? How do I prepare you to endure through those seasons? And so tonight um, is about suffering. I, I don't think that we really like talking about this, but, um, and I don't like saying this sentence because some of you are going to uh, not like me um, right now. But um, the fact is we're all going to suffer. If we live long enough, every single one of us in this room is going to suffer. Every single one of us in this room is gonna die. We're all gonna see friends die. Everybody in this room will die one day. Everybody I know will die. And this didn't used to be very surprising for cultures. I don't think anybody's ever loved this idea, but we live in a world now, and I don't like to just point fingers at postmodernism and the culture we have today all the time. It's real though, like we don't think about it much. And we spend a lot of time trying to put off thinking about these sorts of things. And so we don't know how to deal with it or think about it or prepare for it. And so in times past, when, when cultures have seen suffering and death as things, as means for growth and maturity in our life and things that bring about um, a, a trial of, uh, th through which we, we, are, we become wise and mature and these sorts of things, we try to put off and avoid all that stuff today. And so, and so when I said, like it was already quiet in this room, but when I said death, it was like silence entered the room. Like it got thicker all of a sudden because we don't like to talk or think about it in our culture today. It is the truth though, we all will face it one day. And so one of the questions I've got is, can we face it well? Can we get through it in, in a way that is better? Is there a way to do it better? Is there a way to suffer well? Is there a way to die well? Oof. I just know, like, I could avoid it and you could say something that, um, I don't know, maybe is more intriguing tonight, something that makes you feel better in this very moment. But, but the, the part of my heart that cares for you so much goes, oh my gosh, every person in this room is going to experience suffering and I know what suffering feels like and I know some of the lies we believe in suffering and I know how much in the world there's so much suffering going on all the time. Have you been told the truth about it? Are you ready for it? Do you know who you are in the midst of it? Do you know how you can offer help to people really in need? There's all sorts of ways I can talk about this tonight. I can talk about this philosophically. I can talk about it. You know, the problem with pain and suffering in the world and, and with a good and, and loving God and powerful God. I can just walk you through different texts of scripture and say this is this example of suffering. This is this. But, 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 but I think what I really know is you're all going to experience it. And so I want to talk to you about what it can look like in the midst of it, how you can maybe endure through suffering and how you can maybe offer help to others who are suffering. If it's not central enough in your mind, just because I'm talking about uh, what will happen to every human on the planet um, at some point in life, um, it gets more central for Christians. Now, Christians are not promised, I, I don't think one way or the other, that we will experience more or less uh, circumstantial suffering cancer, loss of home, poverty, riches, these sorts of things. But if you're a Christian, one of the things you're encouraged to do is actually take on suffering. 
And so for as central as suffering is to all of human existence, for the Christian, it even becomes more central. Because now I'm called to actually lay down my life for others. I'm called to come under others and bear their burdens. I'm called to willingly suffer in obedience to my God and for his glory and for your good. I'm called to come alongside you and make suffering even more central. If that's not central enough, what I find in the scriptures is not God and his friends writing these accounts of Jesus's life and the wisdom of God and the acts that he has done throughout the world and history. I don't find him sort of burying suffering under the rug because it's such a tricky problem. I don't find him averting his eyes and saying, no, no, I know that's tough, but look over here. I find him in, in the central moment in all of the history of the universe, lifting up suffering before our eyes in Jesus Christ. Lifting up the one man who deserved none of it. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I find God saying exactly, look, my son, <laughs> the baddest thing happening to the goodest person. Uh, it's probably not grammatically correct, but you know. And he lifts that up before all of our eyes in the very center of history. And what I find in him there is he swallows suffering whole and conquers it. I don't want to make light of it right there. I, I, I could probably make the whole sermon just about that. Maybe I ought to. I don't know. But, but suffering is so central to the Christian story. I got to talk about it with y'all. I got to talk about it with you. And what I want to talk about primarily is how we endure through it. And I'm aware right now that I am on holy ground in your lives. I'm walking through stories that are too heavy for me. And I want to try my best to respect um, the sensitivity of your own suffering, but I do not want to be afraid of it. And I do not want you to be either. I know some of you want answers to the problems of evil tonight. I know some of you want to figure out how you can successfully avoid suffering for the rest of your life, and you're hoping I'm going to give you an answer tonight. But regardless of how hard we try to avoid it, and regardless of the answers to our questions, all of us will experience it. And so what I want to do, again, is I want to try to answer how we endure through it. How do the scriptures tell us that we can, um, we can grow stronger through it, that we can come out the other side? And we're going to do that today primarily by looking at the book of Job um, as a whole, which is a pretty big book. Uh, so buckle up. Uh, <laughs> let's pray. <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask right now that your spirit... <sighs> Uh, draws really, really close to the minds and hearts of my friends in this room. Would you give them freedom tonight to think about and ask the questions that they have in their mind? Would you help them to know that you're not afraid? As I talk about your servant Job, this man who had more faith in his little finger than I could muster in my entire life, um, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that he still, he still fell short of earning your affection. And, and I pray um, that as we talk about him and your response to him, that we see ourselves in the story 
that you, you speak um, in between my words to the hearts and minds of everybody in this room and you remind them of your sovereignty, of your power, of your plans. And you give us hope for something greater than probably any of us have ever asked for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the book of Job, I gotta tell you about Job and we're gonna walk through it um, as, as quickly as possible. I'm skipping over major sections, but it's a strange story. It's a strange story, this book of Job. Um, it's kind of right in the middle of the Old Testament. I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've read it, but it's a, it's a strange story. It's outside of Israel. It deals with a Jewish man outside of Israel. And it's a big book, 40 some chapters, right in the middle of the Old Testament. And it's hard to nail down a time and a place maybe, but when did it exist? And I think this is kind of intentional. It actually begins kind of in heaven, kind of at the throne of God and this council of God. And I think it's, it's, I think it's on purpose kind of starts there and then moves outside of Israel to like, I don't know when with a bunch of guys that we don't really know who they belong to exactly. There's even a guy there that we have really no idea how he shows up in the account that, that has a few chapters of, of monologue. And the reason I think it's intentional that all this kind of happens like that is because I think this is supposed to be a story that is for all people in all places at all times. That the question of suffering and evil is not a current one. It's not just a, just, just a current one. It's existed forever. Why does God allow pain and suffering? Why do good people suffer? This story is so important for the people of Israel that I think in, in God's um, grace and goodness, they wrote it down so that we would have this story to know what it looks like to suffer. And we start seeing that the, all of the questions and dialogues that come up in suffering and pain, all of them. There's nothing I read in Job that wasn't happening today. <laughs> all of the responses from his friends, everything. So the book is order, ordered a little bit like this. There's a couple of chapters at the very beginning where Job and Satan have a deal going on. I'll get into that. And then pretty much the rest of the book up until the very, very end is Job and his friends going back and forth on why suffering is happening. And so Job is really mad and his friends respond with a lot of, well, Job, if you'd done this different, then maybe you'd have been okay. Job, are you sure you haven't tried this? Are you sure there's not some sin in your life and that's why God's causing this? Maybe this is what's happening. You know that they start preaching theology to him and cultural wisdom to him in the midst of his suffering. And he keeps pushing back against them. We'll read some excerpts from it. And then at the very, very end, God finally speaks. And it's kind of surprising, frustrating, I think, for some of us, maybe hopeful as well. This is kind of, that's kind of the outline of the book, I guess. But at the very beginning, a very strange thing happens, which is gonna bring up maybe more questions. Uh, but God, or Satan comes up to God and, and God um, says to him, God actually points out Job and says, there is no one more righteous in all the earth than my servant Job. And so God is kind of doting over his servant Job and Satan makes this comment and says, well, you, you know, essentially, he says, you know why Job likes you? You know why Job loves you? It's because you've blessed him. If you took away his blessings, he would hate you. It's called kind of something like karma, by the way. The whole book is almost in some ways a push against karmic thinking. You can look up the word karma later. But Satan says, if you take your blessings away from him, he will hate you. And God says, first, fine, Satan, have your way with him, just don't harm him. And terrible things happen. This fire hits this, the fields of Job and he loses all of his livestock and all of his crops, all of his way of living and making a living. 
And then while he's away from home, this wind comes and knocks his house down. And both of these are attributed to the works of Satan. Natural disasters in this story attributed to the work of Satan. This wind comes and knocks down the house and all of his sons and daughters die. And Job is lamenting, but he makes this comment. Could you make this comment if that kind of loss happened to you? He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> then the scriptures tell us that in all these things he did not sin. So Satan comes to God again and, and God says, see? And Satan goes, right, but, but if you let me harm him, you see, even in this story, God still exercises control. Satan has to get permission from God in this story to harm Job. And in the first case, he didn't harm him personally, but now Satan says, if you'd let me harm him. And God says, fine, you can harm him, just leave him alive. And so Satan comes to Job and he starts getting boils all over his skin and his skin, it's disgusting. He has this, this huge nasty disease and even his wife was appalled by him and says, do you still hold fast to your integrity, Job? Curse God and die, his wife says. And I, underst I can understand, I can empathize or sympathize with her response to Job. How in the world, Job, knowing if it's true that he's the most righteous man in all the earth, surely she saw some of this in him. You, Job, living the way you live for God with him, why would you do it? Our children are gone. Our property is destroyed. Your body is a wreck now. And all these things, Job did not sin. And he's sitting there mourning, covered in ash and sackcloth. And his friends come alongside of him to comfort him. And I'm gonna come back to that later. But after about a week of sitting with them, they finally, finally get fed up. And they start saying, all right, Job, um, this doesn't happen to you for no reason, man. This is crazy stuff that's happened to you. Fire in the field, wind knocking down your house, your skin has boils and, and stuff all over it. There's gotta be a reason for your suffering. And they start kind of digging into Job's life, pointing fingers and trying to figure out what's happened. And, and at a certain point, he starts to, it seems like, get exhausted. And I wanna pick up some reading here. And we're gonna move through a couple sections of Job pretty quickly, okay? This is Job 13, verses one through 15. If we can read it all together, okay? Um, Job says this to his friends. He's responding to them, right? Behold, my eye has seen all of this and my ear has heard and understood it. In other words, all the things you guys are telling me, I get it, I get it, I get it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God, not with you. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent. And it would be your wisdom. Do you hear that? Shut up. I want to talk to God, not you. Stop telling me all of this stuff that I already know. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Are you, are you taking the words of God in your mouth? Are you guys the voice of God to me? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in the secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims, your, it's a little statements, you know, little pithy statements. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes and your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak. 
And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. I don't know how many of you have ever argued like that. I don't know how many of you have ever stood on thinner ice than that. Though he slay me, even if it kills me, I will hope in him. I will argue my ways to his face. Let me stand before him face to face, even if it means he will kill me. This is how much Job wanted after his friends were arguing with him, right? Back and forth, pointing out all these reasons for his suffering and his pain. Just keep quiet. I wish that the wisdom that you had for me was your silence because I want to make my case before God. And after that, there's, there's more arguments, right? Let's move to Job 19. And he responds uh, sort, of, sort of again after some more arguments with his friends, right? This is Job 19, 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were written. This is interesting, right? Uh, oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. About halfway through all these arguments, we start seeing what Job is longing for more than anything else. I want to see God face to face. He, I want him to answer for this. Nothing will make sense of my circumstances until I see him face to face. This is what he longs for. I want God himself. And finally, Job ends his case with this sort of defense where he just says, look, I have been righteous. All these things that you guys are telling me I've done wrong, I haven't done wrong. The orphan I've cared for, the widow I've cared for, the people in need I've cared for, I have kept God's commands. I'm not being punished because of some secret sin that I haven't focused on, he keeps saying. And at the very end of of this section, it says, and then Job's argument was finished. And this kind of this random interlude happens. This other guy, this young guy who kept his mouth shut the entire time that isn't one of his friends, apparently, was sitting there the whole time. And he says, look, I'm really young. That's why I kept my mouth shut. You guys are all older than I am and wiser than I am. But I, I can't keep my mouth shut anymore. He says, I'm like an old wineskin ready to burst. I'm ready to explode because you guys are driving me insane with what you're saying to each other. Job, you're wrong and all three of your friends are wrong. And he starts coming in with, with stuff that's so close but not quite right. And as we move toward the end of the book, what I find as I read through all of Job is I find that this is, all of this is the wisdom we pass to each other all the time. Pointing our fingers and, and, and proclaiming what real wisdom is and why people suffer and why this bad stuff is happening to the poor in our streets. What we really ought to do about the ISIS problem. Why the Syrian refugees are, what's wrong with us that we aren't accepting them? Why divorce is happening in America? Why you, my friend, are suffering in what you're suffering. All of this wisdom, all of this wisdom getting passed around. And I find all in the words of Job, I find all of our own words. And then in Job 38, one through three, this is the first time in the whole book that we find God speaking to Job. One through three. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Okay, look at how God responds to this, right? Uh, This is, uh, 
Why have you done this, God? Why do I suffer? I've been for you and I've experienced all of this. Why, oh why, God, is this happening to me? And this is his response. Who are you? Who are you? I will question you. You question me, I'm gonna question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you command the morning? Did you set the stars in the sky? Can you send forth lightning? And God goes on and on, questioning Job, begging Job, enticing Job, saying, Job, let me ask you some questions for a minute. And when God is done asking Job this series of questions, Job says this in Job 43 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Think about this. For 30 chapters, we have Job and his friends going back and forth, arguing the why of Job's suffering. And when God begins to say, basically, are you God? Job, who asked his friends to put their hands on their mouths. Job puts his hand on his. And then Job answered the Lord and said this in Job 42, right near the end, one through six. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. Which if you're listening carefully, that might be frustrating because if God can do all things, that means he could have stopped the suffering, right? Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now here he's quoting God, right? God asked him this question. And so Job is responding directly to God's question, quoting God, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And he answers, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And he quotes God again, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. One of the translations argues for this, and I think it's, a, I think it's worth um, attention, that, that, that it could be translated, I find my comfort in the dust and ashes. Because part of a theme that's been pulled throughout the whole book is where is Job going to find comfort? He tries to find comfort. His friends try to bring him comfort, and he keeps getting frustrated that he can't find comfort. And here, saying, now that my eyes see you, and I know that you're God and I'm not. Now here in the dust and ashes, here appropriately placed before you is the first time in the whole book that we see a hint of Job's comfort. In the whole book. What do we see in Job? The huge narrative in the center of the Old Testament. We find this question, why do good people suffer? Why do good people suffer, God? And God's answer is, (laughs) are you God? Do you know all that I'm doing? And if I'm honest, y'all, I read that and I balk a little. Before I get to Job's response, I'm like, golly, is that satisfying? And I see Job responding, and if I've been reading the whole story, I know that this is a man who is being very honest, very blunt, so much so that he would say, I'll speak to God to his face even if he kills me. And so why do I think now he's not being honest? And what I find is his response is surprising to me. Because here when God says, are you, are you God? 
Do you know all of these things? Do you know what's going on behind the scenes? We have no record of, of God telling Job even that, he, that Satan kind of made a wager with God. We have no record of God communicating that. We know that as the reader. Job doesn't. And yet he says, now I repent in dust and ashes. Now I find comfort in dust and ashes. I think there's two things we primarily learn from Job. I gotta start, let me say this, let me say this first. At the end of one of my favorite novels, um, there's this line that says, now I know God why you utter no answers. Because before your face, all questions die away. It's the last line in one of my favorite novels. Now I know God why you utter no answers. Because before your face, all questions die away. I find this in Job. I think that story was actually written on the heels of reading Job. Two things we learn from God, two things we learn from Job, and one is that we need to see the face of God in our suffering. I think what we ask for so often is questions. What I ask for in suffering, whatever the suffering is, I ask for usually, and if we're, if we're being honest, I think we ask for an immediate and temporary response to the thing we're suffering under. Typically. I want answers and I want that. Quick fix and answers. And what I find in the book of Job is he gets neither of those. What he gets is the face of God and he finds comfort. I'm not saying that you, I'm telling you this is what the scriptures are bringing out for us. You may immediately right now balk at this, and I hope that, that in the next couple of minutes here, I can, I can bring it in. But I, I gotta tell you what the scriptures are saying. Job finds comfort in seeing the face of God, that before his face, the questions die away. And he says, I repent. I repent. I find comfort in this, God. What I need to see, God, is that you're God, that in times of suffering, you're still on the throne, that nothing is spinning out of your control. And that's what we want more than anything when we suffer is to come face to face with him. I, I see this most clearly if it's helpful for you. I see this most clearly for me and my littlest child. She's, she's this one that, um, she's an absolute sweetheart and I don't know what happens, but sometimes this switch gets flipped and it's really embarrassing when anybody else is around. When, when nobody's around, honestly, my wife and I think it's hilarious and maybe that's really bad, but um, but she, she's just turned two today. It's her birthday, Audrey, Audrey Grace. And, uh, and when she gets really, really mad, um, she sits on the ground, like she throws herself down on the ground, and then she slams herself back on the floor and usually bangs her head so hard that now she's crying because she hurts, like, physically too. And I think she likes that. Like, I think there's this kind of part of her that feels like, now I've got a real reason to cry. And then she used to actually throw up all the time too in that. She would, like, get herself worked up and throw up, you know? Um, and in the midst, of, and it's like super, super intense, but it was, it's literally so outrageous that there's like, like you're watching it and you're going, this is legitimately crazy. Like this is not a temper tantrum, this is psychotic. Like this is really, really crazy. Um, and she's in, you know, kind of inconsolable for so, so long. There came an age though, that, that like talking to her doesn't work. She doesn't ask why. She's, she's frustrated, you know, because she got the blue cup instead of the purple cup, you know, something like that. And it's like, you know, world's ending. Um, and she's laying there on the floor, hyperventilating. I put my hand on her chest and I can feel her heart going, thump, 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 you know, super, super fast. And what she wants and needs, more, actually, she doesn't even know what she wants. What she needs more than anything else 
is, is usually this. Like, I can't ask her, would you like me to pick you up? Hey, okay, look, Audrey, I'm gonna tell you something right now. Blue and purple are actually really close in the color spectrum. Uh, you know, or, oh, <laughs> super dumb. Um, uh, but, but any other answer, you know, I, I, I try to rationalize with her. In my head, I'm like, this is in the scope of all things, girl, this is not that big of a deal. You know, there's like all these millions and millions of people that, that, are, that, are, that don't have homes, that have left Syria. And you're talking about like a milk cup, like, like chill out, you know. And I, I want to, all of these kinds of thoughts go through my head. You know, and then I sort of, I can get really deep and sort of go, man, what do I do this about, you know? But, but, but that's another story. Um, what, what really needs to happen, though, is I need to not even ask her questions. I need to pick her up, and I, and I hold her. And it's a strange thing. That I don't know how to explain it to you super well other than just to tell you I hold her very firmly without, without like, scaring her. You know what I'm saying? Like, firmly and, like I, like, I want her to be comforted, but I kind of want her to know that I'm stronger than she is. That's kind of it. Like I, I hold her and I don't just hold her lightly. Like I hold her really firmly and I look at her and I say, look at me, chill out. <laughs> and here's what's crazy. Sometimes it doesn't work, right? I'm not God. And, and honestly, even with God, we don't, we don't chill out sometimes when he does that to us, you know? But like, but sometimes it's the most nuts thing to me. My little two-year-old girl as of, as of today, she'll look at me and she'll go, okay. And then she'll hug me. And she'll squeeze me like it's like, I mean, that's the last hug ever. You know what I mean? Like it's super, super tight. And it's crazy because I didn't give her answers to her questions. Nothing. I think what she needed in that moment is to know that I am stronger than her and everything's gonna be okay. She, I, I didn't give her what she wanted. She still gets the blue cup. She's still not getting ice cream before the other thing. You know, what, whatever it is that, that's going on in her little mind that seems utterly ludicrous because the world isn't working out the way she wants it to. I don't want to make light of your sin. I got to talk about how this doesn't work in a second. But, but what, she, what I notice that she needs more than anything else is to know that I am okay. Because what usually wrecks my children is when my wife and I start to have anxiety. When we're out of control, when we're nervous and they can sense it. And they're looking to us going, the world is spinning out of control. They don't know where they are. They don't know when they're getting home. They don't know what food they're eating for dinner. They don't know what time they have to go to bed every night. It's like a mystery. Hey guys, it's 7.30. What? No. You know, it's like this huge, crazy thing. Like it's super surprising for them that it's bedtime every single night, right? They don't know anything about their day most of the time. And they're always just looking to us going like, are you guys in control still? Do you guys got it? Because if mom and dad are cool, I think we're going to be cool. You know, and I can actually see my oldest kid talking to my daughter, saying things like that. Blythe, you know, mommy, daddy, are, they said it's okay. They said it's time for bed. You know, we got to go. Like they're, they're looking, he's looking to us in our comfort and thing. I think this is kind of what I, th I think we need from God. As we're throwing our tantrums and suffering and, and maybe for legitimate reasons, we want answers. We want, the, we want to be healed. We want healing for somebody else. We want these things. I wonder if what we need more than anything else is for God to grab us and hold us and look us in the face and say, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. Now that metaphor, I, I know doesn't work in every circumstances. I know that surely cannot bear the weight of individual suffering in this room. I know that. But what you and I need most in times of suffering is to see God and know that he is still over all and this is not out of his control. But there was something else I got to just reference real quick. Um, right at the end, right after uh, Job sort of responds to God, at the very, very end of, of Job um, in chapter 42, God says this right after Job's response. He, he, he looks at Job's friends and he demands that those three go make a sacrifice 
And he commands Job to pray for them and says if Job prays for them, he'll forgive them, which is kind of nuts. But then God says his anger burns at those three friends who stood around Job and kept giving him advice in the midst of his suffering. And he says, Job, my servant, spoke rightly. Which is a crazy idea. Throughout the whole book, we're being told that, look, Job isn't really righteous. I mean, he's maybe the most righteous man on all the earth, but he's sinned in some ways. He doesn't deserve to, to, to stand in front of the face of God and point his finger. I want to see God face to face and argue my case, even if it means he kills me. And God says, he spoke rightly. And so not only do I read the book of Job and think what we need is to see the face of God, I also think we need to know that we have the freedom to be honest, to be honest in our suffering, to rage against God. I, I, it's not appropriate for me because it's recorded right now, but I would love to quote for you the ways that I have prayed sometimes and the ways my friends tell me they pray when they don't know how to pray. And there's a part of me that every time I, I get to the edge of that, I start to get a little bit nervous. And then I'm like, what do we believe about God? Do we believe he's scared? That he's somehow not big enough to handle our honesty? That if I told him how I really feel, it's gonna undermine and unpin like all of his work. Similar to our doubts. But now in suffering, questioning his justice. And I wonder if like my little girl and me, I don't know if you can imagine this for a minute, but like I know that when I see Audrey on the floor injuring her head, that I'll have to answer for at some point to a doctor. Um, it really, it makes me nervous sometimes. Um, we have slate floors in our kitchen and she, anyway, it's kind of nuts. I, don't, I can't get there fast enough though. She goes, um, but looking at her railing on the floor, I'm not scared I'm not looking at her going like, I don't even know what this means anymore. Maybe she's not gonna like me being her dad anymore. Like, I don't know if we're gonna have to give her up for adoption somewhere. Like, I don't know what's gonna, I don't think any of that stuff. I look at her and I go, I love her. And I wish she knew that like, it's gonna be okay. And I know my whole challenge in that moment is not worried about her being honest and freaking out and all this kind of stuff. The whole challenge in that moment is for me trying to figure out how I can let her know what I know how I can let her know that this too will pass, how I can let her know that, she, that this will move on, that there's more life in front of this, ahead of this, that, I've, that there's stuffing and something in front of her that is greater than, than, than which milk cup she gets to choose. I wish I could let her know, and that's what I'm thinking about, and I'm not freaking out. And I think that one, what I find in the book of Job is his honest questions Show us that he, he may even have a little bit of fear, but he's willing to risk it. Because I know that if there's any redeemer, it's him. He's the one I'm gonna see after I die. Even though he might kill me, I will see him in my flesh. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. We're invited to be honest, to come face to face with God and to seek him for an answer. We see one more thing in the story I got a reference before we end tonight. And that's how his friends respond to him real quick, okay? Over and over again, I've said that they accuse Job, they point their fingers at Job, they come after him with all of these answers. And I know, um, I know that you might like Job if you're suffering or you've experienced suffering. You might long for answers. You might long for comfort. You might long to know how to see God. You might long for all these things. I just don't know how other than being honest, which I can do and which you can do, I don't know what else is in our power in the midst of suffering. 
And so one of the things I want to address tonight, and it's kind of a, it's just a really fun thing to kind of address in almost all of our lives, and we frequently don't look at this, is I don't know how to address my own desires, but I can address yours. I don't know how to comfort myself in suffering, but I can comfort you in suffering. And I can want my own comfort, I just can't make it happen. By God's grace, I think he does that. That's a whole other topic. It's so good that we can't satisfy ourselves in that way. But when I see my friends suffering, when you see your friends, your roommates, your family suffering, you can approach them. And so I wanna suggest to you what's helpful and what's not helpful in comforting your friends. And I wanna use just four words for this to try to make it kind of simple for you and it's in a hierarchy. Will you put up that four, those four words for me, buddy? You can put them all up at the same time, that'd be great. Okay, so I wanna argue, this is, I, I stole this from um, a, a fantastic book called The Problem of Pain in the introduction. Uh, I've never heard anybody talk about this. It's just it stood out to me and it's kind of obscure. I just kind of stole this and then reworded it for this. Uh, but this is from C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, that, that this is, I think, the order of what's really helpful in suffering. <laughs> okay, so um, what I really, really want when I'm suffering um, is for you to love me. That's what I want. I want for you to lay down your life for me. That's what I want. If you can't do that, like if you just can't do that, then, then could you please just sympathize with me for a little bit? Have some pity on me? Try to understand my condition? Feel deeply a kind of sorrow for me? If you can't love me, if you can't lay down your preferences, lay down your rights, give up your time, move toward me in affection and love, at least you can do is feel a little sympathy for me. And if you can't do that, I'll take any act of courage. This is hard for me. And so you taking a risk, I can deal with that even if you make a mistake. You ask me that question that you think I'm gonna get mad at. If I know that it's a risk, I can deal with that. I can thank you for having enough respect for the gravity of my suffering that you have had a little bit of courage. The last thing I need is your knowledge. The last thing I need is for you to try to tell me all the answers that you have. But is this not kind of the reverse order of the way we approach people in suffering so often? I mean, think about this. This is what his friends did, right? Think about the way we often approach our friends in suffering with things like this. Why don't you just, you know, have you ever thought about, look, I just read this blog post. I got this book I really want to give you that really helped me. When I went through something similar, these are the kinds of things that we, we sort of offer each other so often. And honestly, it is so rarely helpful. Why? Even if you're right, because no sentence will bring back someone from the dead. No book you give me is gonna heal my spouse, my friend, my father, my son. Nothing you can tell me is gonna undo the wrongs that have happened to me. Give me love. If not that, give me sympathy. If you just can't do it, at least be courageous. And the last thing I need is an answer. And so one time in the whole book of Job, his friends got it right, and it's at the beginning. And I wanna read that before we close tonight, and then uh, we'll, we'll move to an end. Um, this is Job chapter two. I don't know if I gave it to you, Daniel. Oh, I did, okay, cool. Um, so listen to what happened right after all this crazy stuff happens to Job, and listen to what his friends do for him, right? Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, and this guy from this place, and this other guy from this place, and this other guy from this place. All these three people came from places. And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him, which means they, they gathered together and said, hey guys, let's, let's, we're friends of Job's, let's go comfort him. And they went out to comfort him and have sympathy. 
And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. Why? Because he was a wreck, physically, emotionally disfigured, covered in ash and sackcloth. And they raised their voices and they wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their head toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. They came and silently sat with him for seven days and in that act, they affirm his condition. I just sitting with you in your place, in your posture, crying out the things you're crying, mimicking the things you're doing. You're silent, Job. I'm going to be silent. I'm affirming you in this and giving you space to do more and standing beside you as you do it. They got it right for a moment. If you want a picture of some of what it might look like to comfort somebody in suffering, sit with them for a week and don't say anything. You guys are going to have friends in your life that are experiencing enormous suffering. Would you consider comforting them in a way that actually brings comfort? And you may want somebody to address your own suffering. I'm hoping somebody else in this room is listening (laughs) to that. When I think about enduring through suffering, I think about having the freedom to rage, having the freedom to be honest and to know that God is a big boy and he can take our questions. And then if he can't, why are you following him? If he is blind to your suffering or has no response to your suffering or he is scared of your honesty, why are you following him? We need the freedom to be honest before him. And to not feel, I need the freedom to rage and to feel and to not feel too. I need to have the freedom to not feel anything. Anyway, I can go on about that. But I also think about the need to come face to face with him and I think about how we don't want to be alone. That's the stuff I think about when I think about enduring. Being honest and seeing his face and not being alone in my suffering. And I think about how we can move toward each other offering all of those things. I can help you be honest by affirming your questions and the raging that you have. God can answer for himself, y'all. I can also be like Christ to you. I can show you the face of God and how I move toward you. And I can help you not be alone. We can do that for each other. One thing we must not do, though, and I think sometimes maybe this is one of the biggest things that saddens me and breaks my heart, It's going to sound a little strange at first, but we cannot say that all this suffering is okay in the world. I cannot pretend that all of it's okay, that all the death, that all the pain, that all the evil in the world is okay. And sometimes I think we act that way with our own personal suffering. I ignore the refugees. I ignore the homeless. I ignore the people that are being abused and trafficked. I ignore the divorce. I ignore the fact that people are dying. And I think to myself, if God would just make this okay, then I'll be okay. And I say, please, God forbid that. May we never be okay with that. May we never be people who are okay if I'm just personally satisfied, but I'm okay with the rest of the world being a wreck. And all of history, suffering upon suffering, happening. For a great reason, I think. It's just a different talk. But may we never be a people that, that act like we're okay with all of the other suffering going on if, I, if just my suffering is addressed. 
I am not gonna be okay with my questions answered. I want all the homeless to have homes, all of the abused to be healed, and I want all of the dead to come back to life. That's what I want. And there's no way your answers are gonna give me that. There isn't. There's no friendship I could have in life that's gonna give me all that. There's no spouse that I could gain that's gonna give me all that. There's no job that's gonna get me all of that. There's no circumstance that's gonna get me all of that. There's no amount of likes that's gonna get me all of that. There's no group me I could be added to that's gonna get me all of that. There is nothing that's going to bring the dead back to life and right all wrongs. What we need is to see the face of God. And we need to know that he is over all things. Some of you might have heard a verse from Romans 8, 28, talking about how, how, how for everybody who loves God, all things work together for our good. But don't you dare tell me that what that means is our circumstances get better in the next month. Because if you keep reading, it says what that's about. Paul tells you what, it, what he means by all things work together for our good is that every single person that God has called, and by the way, if you just quickly, if you love him, you're called, okay? For everybody who is called, you will be glorified one day. He walks you through a few more steps, but you will one day be glorified. How can Paul say that everything, everything will work together for our good, for those who love Jesus? Everything. He doesn't mean that the hurricane ripping through this town is really for our good right now. What he means is stepping back and looking at the whole sweep of history, that one day the redeemed in Christ will live forever with no more evil, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, forever and ever and ever. And he will one day right all wrongs, bring the dead back to life. Isn't that what we really, really hope for? Not being abandoned, but being brought to life in front of our Father and Him saying, I love you. Well done, good and faithful servant. These kinds of things we want, and our answer is not in the petty things we try to offer each other all the time or even the things we ask for often. So I don't think we ask for enough in our suffering. I think we need to be more honest. I think we can be frustrated at the own suffering, of the suffering that we face personally. But I want to see in the church a group of people who are suffering on behalf of the world. My own personal suffering allows me to identify with other sufferings and I look at Christ and I say, he has conquered suffering. I, I willingly walk into suffering on behalf of others. Yes, I also suffer and I can be honest about that. Why can I be honest about that? Because he's not scared and he can conquer death. One day he will right all of these wrongs and let me never stop short of wanting something less than that. Let me never want something less than that. Ever, 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 ever. May we be a people who are not satisfied by trying to address our sufferings with small little things. May we want something that satisfies the, all of the suffering of the world, that rights all wrongs, that, that rewrites all of history, that somehow God can, can heal all wounds and bring the dead back to life. That's what I want. That's what I think his people ought to want. In the meantime, while we long for and hope for that and protest anything else that says it's all gonna be okay if just this happened, if just this happened, if just this happens, I protest that. No, it won't be okay. I want his kingdom come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what I want. In the meantime, if you're suffering, here's what I wanna do. I wanna come alongside you and shut my mouth and just love you. And if I can't do that, I'm gonna give you a little sympathy as best I can. And I'm gonna be really courageous. And if it answers the lowest common denominator that I have, I'm gonna do it very safely 
and then walk away, okay? I can do that and sit alongside you and bring you comfort in it and I can with you say, yes, this sucks. This sucks and I want, to, I want to see him in my flesh and I want him to right all wrongs and I want him to bring the dead back to life and let's suffer under the desire of that and wait for him to satisfy us however he will. We've got to want something more. We've got to want something more in our suffering, y'all. We're going to pray in a minute, in a second, and then we're going to sing a couple more songs. And when we sing these songs, I think every week we sing these songs, it gives us an opportunity for God to speak through, our, through our, our hearts and our minds as we proclaim these words. And in some of the lyrics, what you're gonna find is a hope that speaks to something greater than even the ways that we suffer today. That it speaks to healing of nations and these songs speak to life everlasting and these kinds of things. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit honestly invites us into deeper suffering, which is super weird to say to our generation but invites us to actually go deeper in our suffering, to get more honest and to long for God to answer all of the questions in all of the world, in all of time. So I want us to sing to him like that. I want us to cry out to him and I want us to be able to say something like we sang just before I came up here to preach. Though he slay me, I will hope in him because no other answer I'm gonna be satisfied with. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I... Uh, I know nothing I say, um, nothing I say. All these words fall short of, um, of us hoping in you. All of these words fall short of um, honoring the brokenness and frustration and anger that many of us feel and the suffering that we have. We want to see your face. We want to know that you haven't let our lives or our futures or our families or our possibilities spin out of your control. And we want you to make all things right. I pray that your spirit would help everybody in this room um, find those desires in themselves and tap into them and express them. And then would you set us, um, set us toward loving our neighbors, and even our enemies. Set us toward moving to the suffering and the brokenness in the world around us, even as we long for our own suffering to be addressed. Would you set us out toward others that we might love them? May we be people that offer hope in waiting, people that offer hope in proximity, people that offer hope in affection, people that offer hope in sympathy and in laying down our lives in service to one another. Keep us from giving religious answers, pretending that we know you and all of the things that you know. None of us have your knowledge entirely. None of us do. And I know from your scriptures that any number of things could be going on in suffering. How am I to know which of those things it is? Would you help us to be aware of that in our humility and move toward each other in love? As we sing now, God, um, would you lift us up as we lift up our hands and our voices? May you be honored in broken praise, in doubting words, in frustration and in questions and all these things that we suffer through. Um, and would you take every single one of us that loves you and desires you and would you remind us that you will one day bring us into glory. May we have hope in that.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.